0: Mmm, podcasting.
1: Mmm, podcasting.
0: Podcasting. Do you want to start a podcast? Sure. Alright, let's pod.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck.
0: And I'm Sean
1: oh no uh no last no no letters
0: no no little letters today i'm, I'm foregoing the little letters wow. i don't really have the energy i'm pretty miserable right now to be honest i can't even do the letters
1: oh pretty soon you'll just be s
0: i'll just be you s- already yeah.
1: abbreviated your uh, second two names
0: i've been thinking about uh maybe changing my last name to mckelwee anyways <laughs> to finish my transition
1: transition to what
0: you know i'm transitioning into Sean
1: McCauley. <laughs> oh, boy. Into
0: a grifter pollster guy.
1: Oh, uh, that's that's going to be weird, doing a show with uh, all that. He yeah. does seem to get a lot of press, though. He just had that giant Atlantic
0: article. Did you see that shit? He's I saw all over it. the internet today. It, yeah. Oh, my God.
1: I mean, I've been to some of his happy hours, and he would always, like, kiss my ass, and I liked that about he, him. He
0: did that to me, too.
1: <laughs> but... And to the point where I was like, oh, he's nice. I think he's kind of nice, which like just shows what a fucking idiot I am and how, you know, flattery will literally get you everywhere with me. I was like, you know, he's definitely a lib, but he's like a well-intentioned one. Like, I wouldn't call him like a grifter or anything. Psych.
0: (laughs) I remember meeting him. And this was the really weird part is that I don't even think we had a podcast at that point. But he was like, he met me. He was like, hey, you should come to my blue and gold happy hours or whatever. And I'm like, dude, I'm just a construction worker. <laughs> like, do I really want to spend my time in the evenings going out on like kibitzing and whatever with like liberal media figures? So, I, of course, I never went. But I just thought it was funny.
1: Yeah. I mean, some people that we like, we go to there. I would go there to hang out with Peter Feld, the only good boomer. Oh,
0: yeah. Peter. Shout out to people. Peter Feld. He's an old, he's like... One of the a dying breed of like Gen X. Uh, he's a boomer. Liberals. Is he a boomer? He's a fucking boomer, he's dude. A young, he's a young boomer.
1: Yeah, but he's a boomer. He's very proud of being
0: a boomer, actually. What What was the the campaign he worked on? Do caucus?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. He used to like do data and stuff, and he does it now again for some uh, some political consulting. Consulting uh, for left progressive women i don't know he's cool he's the only <laughs> good boomer that's the point he lives in manhattan lives in manhattan that's where he's... we that's where i would hang out with him
0: yeah he's one of the last standing uh true progressive liberals in downtown manhattan
1: god, can you imagine can you imagine if we get to be boomer age and this shit has still not changed or <laughs> or has continued to degrade at uh, the pace that it's going
0: oh my god it's i gonna mean, be horrible like yeah. how is
1: he not grumpier
0: I probably all the partying probably keeps him young and sane yeah. but that's part of why I'm not I'm not, I'm not feeling great these days <laughs> everything oh, no. kind of sucks.
1: What's wrong? I, I don't
0: think it's just me. I think uh we're now what 6 months into a uh global pandemic and I got laid off again which is fine, you know, whatever, fuck that company, but you know, we've all just been sitting around for all these months and just stewing in our own juices and then you look at the news and it's it's not great, folks. It's not very good out there.
1: No. And people we like keep dying. Yeah. And that's really sad. Oh yeah, da- David Graber
0: uh unfortunately uh passed away last week.
1: Yeah, you wanna you wanna say a few words? I know that you uh you were somewhat acquainted with him.
0: I was acquainted with him. I wasn't friend friends I was friendly with him, let's put it that way. I thought he was a really interesting and uh innovative thinker. I think that uh some of the best work done by an anarchist theorist i think in the last 20 years his debt book was incredible i think that the bullshit jobs article and then book also got a lot of traction too and helped to kind of i think demystify for a lot of people what wage labor is like especially in the more white collar sectors or service type sectors um so that was obviously really powerful Inter- it was
1: also like a concept that people can understand yes. very readily, yeah. which is very important to have when you are a leftist theorist.
0: Very important to have. He did he did that really well. I I remember I'll tell one story and uh there had been a series of uh university occupations a couple of year before a couple of years before Occupy Wall Street and Long story short, I ended up in jail. I was in the tombs with a whole bunch of my friends. And when we got out, who was doing prison support? But David Graeber and a lot of other people. So when we got out, David and a bunch of other anarchists and communists, they all took us out drinking. And then there was like a snake march in the city and a celebration. And he was a really, really nice guy. That was a couple of years before Occupy when we occupied those universities and then david graver helped to create occupy wall street so i had one small little part to play maybe in in the whole rise of occupy wall street for better or for worse but r.i.p david graver it's really sad to hear about his passing and uh wish we could have had him on the show
1: yeah seems like by all accounts he was a really nice dude he was and He, he like walked the walk too
0: yeah totally he was uh The reason that that he was in my circle is because he and my friend Johnny back in the 90s were both part of something called NEFAC, the Northeastern Federation of Anarcho-Communists, which existed, I think, like mostly in New York City and in Montreal. So they were really hyped that they were internationalist and that they had both Quebec and also New York City and then some other branches around. But, yeah, that's ancient history now. But
1: rest in power,
0: rest in power.
1: So um. I figure we can start out. Um, oh, you know what? I'm just going to say it right off the bat. I'm a bit sick. Neither of oh, us yeah. are feeling great.
0: Yeah, not great. So. It was nice of you to take your temperature when I showed up before <laughs> I took my mask off. Though.
1: <laughs> I did. It's not COVID, right? I did. It, I don't have a fever. I don't think it's COVID. It, it just feels like the kind of virus you get. After you go on vacation with Virgil for a weekend,
0: <laughs> Virgil itis
1: Yeah, no, it's fine. It's not. It's not contagious. Or you know, it probably is. Actually, that's probably how I got it. But um, it, it really get you gotta supercharge it by doing a lot of drugs and smoking a lot of cigarettes.
0: <laughs> a lot of whippets. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, we'll we'll get through this episode. I think uh, it's a day late. Because a guest of ours couldn't make it at the last minute. But that's the first time we've ever done this. So I think that's fine. Thursday is totally fine for a release. But uh, yeah, if not, neither of us are feeling great, let's just let's just do it. Let's just yeah. roll through if, it.
1: And if anyone has any complaints about this episode, you literally can direct them to Virgil Texas. There
0: <laughs> you go. Email Virgil Texas. Because it is his fault. Any complaints. This
1: time, it actually is his fault.
0: <laughs> I have a question for you. Um... I don't think we've asked this in a while. And it's not how pure is your hate. That would be funny to do that. But uh, Andy's
1: not here. Go crazy.
0: (laughs) No, I don't think either of us have the energy to to talk about hatred right now or maybe even feel it. I don't know. Uh, Here's a question. What books are we reading right now? What are you getting into these days?
1: Ooh. That's a fun question. Well, You
0: can tell this is a super well-prepared episode. <laughs>
1: uh, so, uh, anyone we, uh, read any good books lately?
0: <laughs> we, usually, we usually spend so many hours preparing for these things, but uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. It's going to be fun. It's
1: going great. It's going great. So, I just finished reading The Iron Heel, actually. Which, oh,
0: Jack London. Yeah,
1: it turns out Jack London was a big socialist. Yeah. And I didn't know. I thought he was just like the wolf guy. But apparently he was a big socialist.
0: You can do both.
1: Yeah, find you an author that can do both.
0: <laughs> There's two wolves <laughs> inside every man's two wolves, socialism and an actual wolf.
1: <laughs> Indeed. He uh, he predicts, it's the, this like really cool speculative fiction. Have you read it?
0: It's about, uh, he predicted fascism before fascism. He right? predicted
1: the rise of fascism and he predicted a revolution in the U.S., which has sadly not come to pass, but he predicted other revolutions in other so, places. So
0: he's, he was successful in, uh, in the bad thing, but not in predicting the good thing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's revolutions in Europe in this book, too, which, you know, he predicted as well. But um, I thought it was a really nice, really nice little volume. And it kind of got me pumped up to read what I'm reading right now. What's that? Which is... The first measures of the coming insurrection. The
0: first measures of the coming insurrection sounds interesting. It's not the Invisible Committee, though, right? No, not to be confused. That Glenn Glenn Beck banged on about in the the media on Fox News for years, right?
1: No, but it could be considered something of a sequel to that book, I guess. I mean, I didn't, I didn't read that one, and it's by different people. But
0: that one isn't that good. I don't really like it. That but much. you know what? Andy likes it. There, he's might, not here.
1: there might be some overlap between them because it's the only named author is Eric Hazen. And then we have Camo, an anonymous group of French revolutionaries.
0: They might be part of the Tarnac people. I know them, the people. It, it's a long story. They live in this commune in Tarnac. Some of them wrote coming insurrection. Anyways, go on. What, what's this one all about?
1: Um, Well, I think the purpose this book serves is to put the idea of uh, revolution back on the table, because throughout the 20th century, uh, the left has I mean, we've had some we've had some bad ones. And the left as it currently exists, um, we're so far from a revolution. A lot of people don't really take it seriously. They think it's LARPing, whatever, whatever. And like I even feel that way too, because I was raised in the same environment that everyone was, and I can see capitalist realism the immense power of the state. Um, but they really they really see glimmers of this insurrection in the Arab Spring and in other uprisings that have erupted around the world. Um and They say they talk about basically why the idea of a transition period or a dictatorship of the proletariat as laid out by traditional Marxist Leninists is bad and will never result in communism Mm. will always be rolled back. And in order to really wipe away the old order and all traces of it so that it can't be reversed, they say creating the irreversible, Mm. we need to go full, full hog into communism just full we have to smash the motherfucking state communize it directly uh without mediation mediation, from a vanguard party or anything calling itself state socialism or anything like that that's all bullshit just gotta fucking go for the gold
0: (laughs) but can you have if there's no vanguard can you at least have an invisible committee
1: Hmm. like some
0: some some like 19th century anarchist shit.
1: I have not read to the end yet, but... <laughs> That's
0: the big reveal at the end. <laughs>
1: perhaps. Perhaps you can. I don't know. But I, I like a lot of the ideas in it. The idea that... Um, I mean, it, it makes more sense to me. Like we talked about in the last episode as well. The idea that we could somehow like train and arm a fucking red army. Yeah without being discovered immediately and sent to jail by the FBI yeah. seems a little a little out of the question So for people who believe in revolution what are you left with You're left with these massive spontaneous uprisings from non-professional people who are just pissed off and have molotov cocktails and shit sure, and it's sure. the job of parody, you
0: know, parody It's
1: the job of the organized left such as one exists to participate in these movements. Um, help them cohere, political vision, push them to their radical limit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera.
0: Very fascinating stuff. I, I remember when um, "Coming Insurrection" came out. It was around the same time. It's a little b- bit before, but around the same time that communization became a thing too. So there was both on the anarchist side and on the Marxist side, communist side, whatever. There was this sense that like. It has to be done in the in the present without mediations. And that was a real moment in time, and I think it was a very influential one, so it's cool you're going back to read that shit. Oh,
1: yeah, and it is. I'm actually reading the description right now. It is the sequel to oh. the book that Glenn Beck called quite possibly the most evil thing I have ever <laughs> read, and it also lays out some ideas for how to communize the world, oh, which cool. I like, because... Like as much as I enjoyed the moon book, Dovey is pretty pretty slim on the details.
0: He's pretty slim on the details. He he's like if like in Spain he says it didn't succeed because they lacked communist Elon or something like that. And he's right I think about the in the in the Spanish Civil War that the end of the process of communizing, of like creating the communes, creating revolutionary workers uh organizations in production uh, was the death knell of the revolution. But it, yeah, it's very tough. He's basically like, it, they didn't get there because they didn't get there yet. Or they, they just didn't try hard enough or the conditions just weren't, you know. We could do an entire episode right. on, uh, I'm probably, I'm not probably doing him a lot of justice. It's been a while since.
1: I well, we it, have but. done two episodes on uh, communization theory and <laughs> A counting. lot of good it's done us. So
0: <laughs> I'm like, oh, you, you, the, the stuff and the thing.
1: <laughs> fair. <laughs> that is fair.
0: Forgive me, folks.
1: Maybe we'll do a few more and then we'll start to figure out what it actually means.
0: Yeah, that'd be great. Three episodes is usually when you can figure out what something means. Yeah. Maybe.
1: I mean, I would love to have on um, some people from the Angry Workers blog. Oh, sure. Because I really liked what they wrote about insurrection and production because it really seemed like an attempt to synthesize some of the more galaxy-brained ideas from communization theory with something that takes practicality into account and production into account because you know the average grocery store only has enough goods for like a few days if it doesn't get replenished and if you don't take say food production seriously uh your communization party ain't gonna last that long
0: yeah i was watching um a video a couple nights ago douglas lane he's got the zero books um videos that he does on youtube and he was talking about the same thing through through David Harvey, who was basically, remember that thing that came out where Harvey's like, capitalism's too big to fail. Oh, we yeah. need to like... But it, it, in a certain sense, it, it sounds like reformist or it's, it sounds weak, but it is true that like these complicated logistics chains that, chains that like feed us and clothe us and keep power going and all that. You can't just simply like play games with that and like experiment and muddle yeah. your way through the food supply.
1: No. <laughs> Your revolution's gonna fucking fail.
0: Yeah, your people are gonna die, and that—that's what I like.
1: That's what I like about the Angry Workers blog. Like, it really gives a sense of the scope of the task at hand and all the different things that we would need to figure out how to do all at once in order to fight and win a revolution. In uh, the the case study that it uses is in the UK.
0: Sounds great. we should have the angry workers. I'm an angry worker. you're an angry worker. Yeah. We should have the the actual official angry ones. Um,
1: what have you been reading?
0: Yeah, what have I been reading? i well, there's a funny story. remember it was I know it was two thousand eleven because um we just uh Jacob resurrected the email thread the other day because it, it came up online, but uh the trip we took to New Hampshire to Steve's cabin with uh, J.D. and Johnny and Jacob, the one where J.D. told you he was going to kill your parents and wear their skin as pelts. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that trip. That was a fun trip. Yeah, it was a whole lot of fun. Um, We were reading on that trip the unpublished manuscripts of Michael Heinrich's introduction to the first three, vo- to the three volumes of Marx's Capital. It had just been translated from German into English. So like the hipsters we were, we were reading it before that album even dropped. So long story short is, it was like when, uh, when my buddy had the, uh, the Strokes This Is It record, like the album, but the UK one that had the girl's ass on it. Oh, it was that kind of hipster shit. They was, had to t- and they had New York City cops yeah, on it. Yeah, I was going to say... Yeah.
1: That's the main thing I remember. I don't remember the girls' ass, but I remember after 9-11, they had to take off New York City cops.
0: That was a real shame. So like in the the same way that uh, that same relationship to the strokes I had with Michael Heinrich. So anyways, people were talking about it online. So I picked up uh, an introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital. And it is fucking incredible. I recommend it to everybody. I'm going to lend it to you. And I also realized reading it again that it's another one of these books similar to Postone where when I read it god like nine, ten years ago, I internalized a lot of his critiques. It's so lucid and it's so concise. He does uh uh by the by the end of it, you'll understand that you have to reject a substantialist reading of value, which means that so many Marxists go around as though value in the Marxist sense can be found within actual commodities that you can measure them, that you can like, get a mic- microscope out and see like, all, all the bits of crystallized abstract labor that exists inside a commodity, or even do that with the entire economy. and Heinrich says, no, that is not the point. There's no substance that can actually be found within the commodity. The commodity, the value can only be seen when it's realized, and it can only be realized in the process of exchange through money. That probably sounds really muddled to people, but it was a really, really good way of, I think, for me anyways, to understand a lot of these debates where it's all very economic, and I think a lot of the actual um, social critique, the critique of political economy gets lost in it. So I've got one little, you want me to read a, a little thing from it? Sure. One of the things that people hate about Michael Heinrich, who actually comes out of STEM, right? So he's like very different. And he's German. So he's a German STEM Lord, basically. Uh, One of the things they dislike about him is that he says that line does not go down. (gasps) He is a line goes down denialist. At least allegedly he is.
1: How dare he?
0: How dare he? There there are all these uh, political economists out there like Kleiman, like Sheik. shake, rather, uh, and others, Mosley, who are trying to actually do the math, look at and crunch the economic data, and prove that the, the rate of profit does have a tendency to fall. Michael Roberts, of course, is another one. Heinrich says he doesn't say there's no tendency of the rate of profit to fall. He said that Marx does not prove it, and whether there is a tendency for the rate of profit to fall has no bearing on Marx's essential crisis theory, which doesn't require like uh, a secular decline a secular collapse of value production so
1: interesting to
0: in order to in order to do that he he takes this quote from capital volume 3 talking about how you know we don't require this law that the capitalist mode of production um The law expresses something more general, I should say, that the capitalist mode of production comes up against a barrier to the development of the productive forces, which has nothing to do with the production of wealth as such. But this characteristic barrier, in fact, testifies to the restrictedness and solely historical and transitory character of the capitalist mode of production. So Heinrich finishes, even without this, the limitations of the capitalist mode of production are already manifest in the fact that the development of the forces of production and the production of wealth are subordinate to the valorization of value. And this narrow goal unleashes a glut of destructive forces against humanity and nature. Whether the expression of value in the terms of capitalists and accountants rises or falls, it does not alter the fundamentally blinkered character of the capitalist mode of production. So I'm throwing out a gauntlet there. I think we might have to have the boys back on and they can defend uh, the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. But I think it's interesting to think about like, how we imagine the essentials of crisis theory working. Like, Can we still have a critique of political economy, if it's not going to collapse or like irrevocably fall into decline, we still can because it's still a shitty system. I mean,
1: if line does not go down, then why do the crises happen?
0: Because I guess the lines go back up. (laughs)
1: <laughs> all right. I mean, is that, is that a dumb question? Or? No,
0: it's not a dumb question at all. It's a, it's a line goes down question. So we'll bracket that. We'll put all this right. to the side. We'll leave this parenthesis out there for the listeners to leave them hanging. Because I know they're all on the edge of their seat trying to do a Michael Roberts versus Michael Heinrich debate about the law of value and the tendency of the rate of profit to fall. We'll get there, folks. Oh, we'll do it. Oh,
1: snap. World star,
0: baby. <laughs> World star.
1: So I noticed... Some news stories lately about uh, QAnon people getting into Congress, winning primaries. At least one is going to win the general election. I haven't been following it. There will definitely
0: be one QAnon supporter and believer going into the House of Representatives.
1: It will probably not be Laura Loomer, thank the Lord. Oh, Jesus. Somebody like about as bad as her probably just
0: marjorie taylor green yeah and this is in georgia she won the primary against like just a regular ass republican and she's not running against anybody so she's definitely gonna win the democrats didn't even put somebody up they said QAnon, we can't even we can't beat that let's just have her be let's have her go in congress so yeah people are freaking out man this is like it's one thing to have this wingnut movement on the fringes and online it's a whole other thing to have it, not just in Congress, but did you see that Save the Children hashtag campaign they did uh, a couple weeks yeah, ago? Yeah,
1: that did crazy well. It spread like wildfire on And Facebook. they were
0: literally in the streets. Like, if you listen to, um, what's it called, QAnon Anonymous, The it's a really great podcast. People probably know about it already. But, um, yeah, they, they went to these fucking marches, and you had hundreds and hundreds of people oh out there rallying to save the children, which doesn't mean, like, necessarily stop the actual human trafficking that's happened and abuse of minors and abuse of women and and all that it means stop the save the children from being eaten by the (laughs) blood-sucking ghoulish democrats and tom hanks who are like kidnapping them and tying them down eating their flesh and taking their adrenochrome
1: oh boy and these are people we should know with some power in society like the I know that the white working class gets blamed for a lot of Republican shit, yeah, blame but for everything. the QAnon people are largely not poor. They are like, you want to talk about PMCs? Like, that's what a lot of them are, or they're small business owners. They fucking vote. They have power in the Republican Party. So, like, on a scale of 1 to 1488, uh, how concerned <laughs> should we be?
0: Well, um, uh, before I get to that, because I have some thoughts on it, um, the, they've been really, really good at branding themselves with this, this hashtag thing. And apparently they've gotten a whole bunch of new followers by, just like a religion, having evangelists go out there and do like really nice, you know, save the children type propaganda on Instagram and Pinterest and whatever. Yeah,
1: who doesn't want to save the children? <laughs>
0: exactly. It's a no brainer. But uh, the demographic that they've got is exactly, as you say, suburban, middle-aged, and, like, younger, I guess, like, uh, millennial or Gen X. Um, Yeah, women, white women from the suburbs. So there's now this, this like, typically sort of new-age demographic that's into all this crunchy shit. They kind of move towards anti-vax. And now they're heading into, again, believing in, like, really kind of dangerous... um, Highly anti-Semitic and just wingnut fucking beliefs about how the world works. So, is it dangerous? You asked, Do you think it's dangerous?
1: I asked you first. Okay, fine.
0: <laughs> it's tough, man. It's tough. I mean, there's a lot of people talking about it. I think there's so many things that are going wrong right now between the climate. I mean, the climate's really the big one. Uh, this continuing um, battle against police brutality and incarceration. Just the fact that our political system just cannot resolve any of the contradictions that exist. And police reform is the perfect example of that. We're going to talk Mm -hmm. about Breonna Taylor and what happened with that. But like all this effort put in, all this media coverage and this political system like an immovable rock just sits there and there's no way to get anything done. There's no way to resolve anything. So you have arising this force that exists this force that basically tries to solve this contradiction in very, very deeply disturbed ways. Um, Of course, by, like I said, these tropes, but also just by like um, deep right-wing conspiracy theories. I watched a uh, a 10-part video from a Dutch woman a couple nights ago called, I think it's Down with the Cabal. And this video, because I want to know what these people actually believe, and it's just simply the same right-wing, sort of vaguely libertarian, vaguely fascist talking points that we've talked about on the show already. You know, like the Bilderberg Group and Rockefeller and George Soros or whatever. It's all Boring. thrown in there. Yeah, it's like, but, but now, like I said, it's like way more popular and a ton of people are organizing around this. They're li- literally organizing and getting themselves in some small way into the halls of, poli- of political power. <laughs>
1: I mean, Sam's been concerned that there's going to be another Brooks Brothers riot if, uh, you know, if the election is contested and uh, they, like, pressure the justices or whatever to decide in Trump's favor. Could the QAnon people be the new Brooks Brothers rioters?
0: (sighs) it's entirely possible man this 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 election is another looming disaster it's like going to be really bad i might try not to be here to be it's honest so
1: soon I too know.
0: there's so many elements of chaos well, and too
1: bad we're vectors of disease and no other country wants us
0: well so well i got i got a way around that but that's for after the show <clears throat> so i talked about like the all the contradictions in politics and how a lot of these Republican conservatives with with uh, I almost said True anon <laughs> oh with, with QAnon are going nuts, like no, literally. We'll, believe we'll, it. we'll deal with them separately. <laughs> but it's also true on the other side. Like liberals are still debating and talking about. Whether if they had a time machine, they'd go back, go back in time and kill baby Putin. Like they're still on this fucking Russia oh gay shit. And they have the delusion that like Republic, if you just get Trump out, that things could go back to normal again. And yeah. it's fucking insane. So on both sides of like our very blinkered political spectrum in the United States, they're both completely fucking insane. Yeah. It's just that the QAnon people are like insane in a way different way. Yeah, <laughs> These I aren't mean, MSNBC no. people.
1: All right. I'm going to stick up for my Russiagate libs for, like, a nanosecond here. Yeah, go for it. And say that there is a kernel of truth to the Russiagate stuff that does not exist. Yeah. Like, we we know. It's
0: more material.
1: Like, we know that Russia did try to tamper... With our election, that doesn't mean that they were successful. No, they. That doesn't but, mean it affected the outcome. But even in but the way that, but we know that, that they did try, and to say that um, that they didn't is like I don't know. It seems like mindless contrarianism, Michael Tracy shit.
0: Yeah, I mean you know better than me because you're on the majority. Because I've report been forced. I've been forced to sit been through it to talk about enough it. <laughs>
1: times that I'm that like kind of convinced that that part of it is real. Well, thank you, Uncle Sam Cedar. We 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 had david kleon on
0: like 2 years ago to talk about this maybe longer than that ago mm-hmm. and i think that the rational kernel is that there are like plutocratic capitalist actors in the in the russian state and in the united states uh including their political system and ours that are corrupted and trying to influence other people's elections in various different ways i don't want to i don't want to get into a whole thing on the russia gate bullshit cuz i think yeah, but it is true that there was something more there than that George Soros is paying anti Antifa protesters and they're going to the suburbs in order to kill white babies and drink their blood. <laughs> a little yeah. bit more rational.
1: Yeah, but like I agree that the way that Libs are engaging with it a lot of the time is insane.
0: Because it does the same thing, right? It creates this sort of... There's a cognitive dissonance that you have to have if you believe that there's two ways of thinking in the world. Democrat or Republican, not even liberal or conservative, but there's two teams and you're on the good team. You're on the side of righteousness. And if only you could get 51 percent of the vote on either side, you know, on your side, I should say, then you can fix the world. It's impossible to believe that anymore. On Again, on either side, it's impossible to believe that. So you have to come up with these delusions in order to get around this cognitive dissonance. Yeah. Um, but I will say, though, like the um it's like it's not the end of the world all right i was reading recently have you heard of rick perlstein he did uh nixon land no oh uh, he's like maybe the most famous good political popular historian in the united states and he writes these really long books they're about like the post war period they're like extremely my shit me and matt were we're on vacation last weekend. We're freaking out about the book and telling all the stories. It's, we're probably going to get another history as a weapon out of it. Oh, boy. Uh, he, put, he put out a new book called Reaganland. And in that, of course, he can't just start with Reagan. He has to start with the 1970s. And he has to basically start with Jimmy Carter. Because we all know there couldn't be a Reagan without a Jimmy Carter. One of the dynamics that you start to see in the 1970s, is people like Richard V. I don't know how the fuck you even say that. These right-wing marginal fridge figures that had existed in these wingnut McCarthyite groups like the John Burt Society that literally believed that a... The, all the generals and Eisenhower were secret communists and also believed that Jews and globalists put fluoride in the water for, for mind control. Like, you've heard of this shit, right?
1: I mean, we did, but they oh. didn't know that.
0: <laughs> they, they caught on to that. But they were like a marginal, uh, marginal fringe movement that everybody made fun of, but they were like obviously really strident and believed their shit. In the 70s, you started to see direct mail which is where these right wing groups would start to basically get whole lists of like churchgoers and other like conservative people who had signed up for magazines or whatever and started sending out hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of these little short pamphlets uh, to these lists of millions of people that would get them super worked up and have them donate money in order to stop the equivalent of George Soros at that time from like bringing communism to the United States. So the the craziness had existed up until the 1970s, but it's only in the 1970s that the ability to disseminate it that the proper media arises and when that arises and now these fringe right wing groups can start organizing themselves and working together and sharing information and sharing their ideas. That's when you start to see people like Anita Bryant come and push back against the emerging gay rights movement. It's when you start to see anti-abortion. That's when you start to see anti-equal rights amendment is when they have the, the right wing has the media in order to communicate with themselves. It's the same fucking thing now with the Internet. It's the same fucking thing now with Facebook. You're just seeing a phase shift now, a paradigm shift where it goes from a small group in the 50s of just wing nuts sitting in a room together to the 1970s and 80s when they started to create a more mass political movement of whack job fucking crazy people by by mailing each other like all this these insane theories and then you have in the 80s and 90s with the telecom act and the end of the fairness doctrine and the rise of the internet the ability for wing nuts to all of a sudden be on everybody's computer you have all these alienated upset boomers out there like the the people we're talking about with the Save the Children campaign, and they're looking for anything. They're looking, trying to find a way to understand the world, why it's fucked up, why it's changing, why the way they think should be is the right way for it to be. They're looking for people to communicate their fringe wingnut ideas with, and the Internet has that for them. Even if they're not fringe and, and, and wingnut, these ideas are disseminated now and shared on social media or whatever in ways that are making it much a much more mass phenomenon. So the point with QAnon is, I think at the end, I will, I will finish this rant, is that the crazies have always been there, but their method and means of communication and organizing themselves now is what's different. There's always been the crazies, but now it's just a more mass phenomenon because of mass uh, social media.
1: So... I guess it's like a lot of things in that it's been around forever. But in this era, because of technology or whatever, it's just gotten worse. Yeah. But I would like to know why social media is uniquely conducive to spreading crazy right-wing conspiracy theories uh, rather than, I don't know, sane left-wing uh, communist theories. I think... I think like, it, if you look at the yeah. top 10 posts on Facebook right now, it's all... Trump and QAnon and, like, Ben Shapiro and shit.
0: Yeah, no, that's definitely true. I think, again, we're going to be doing this a lot this episode, but I think it deserves a, a longer look. And thankfully, Matt, Crispin, and I are recording an episode, of History as a Weapon, on QAnon, the prehistory of QAnon. Oh, wow. And religiosity in the United States. We're going to create the grand theory of QAnon. So we'll leave everybody hanging. But I will say that I think... Yeah, it's 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 wrong to say that that it's a fringe as it gets closer and closer to the mainstream. But I also think that the it's the social the material conditions that we have this crisis that we have right now that makes these wingnut ideas much more acceptable and understandable to people who are themselves going slowly insane <laughs> individually as we go insane socially.
1: Uh, that's fair. Well,
0: it's something to keep an eye on, though.
1: For Certainly. Certainly. For what it's worth, everybody needs to call your boomer parents, call your boomer grandparents if you're super young. And, and tell
0: them don't save the children. Tell them. Grandma, them do not save the, the children. The
1: children do not deserve saving. Exactly.
0: <laughs> That'll really bring them over to the sign of, sign of sanity.
1: <laughs> yeah. Or, or just like give them an activity to do that does not involve showing up With a gun at a pizza parlor. Yeah,
0: but you put your finger on another part of this issue, which is people can't do anything right now. Why do you think this thing has exploded when it did in the last six months is because (laughs) everybody's sitting at home right now going insane, being miserable. And again, like it's not an adequate explanation of our affairs, but, you know, George Soros running a Jewish cabal that sucks adrenochrome out of children's heads is... An explanation. (laughs) It's not plausible, but it exists and people want them right now. And so many people are just sitting at home right now waiting for this pandemic to end.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that as with the left, it's sort of a good and important excuse to get out of the house and go to a protest despite the uh, fears of COVID. But these people don't believe that COVID is real (laughs) in the first place. Yeah,
0: they're mass deniers. And, and, And unfortunately, or I would say... I'm not sure I want them getting out and hitting the streets en masse. That sounds kind of bad. No,
1: no. But like for them, (laughs) like it must be nice for them.
0: So Um, it's a blessing, really. It's a land of contrast.
1: I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to put myself (laughs) in someone else's shoes, you know?
0: No, no. I mean, I I think that that's really fucking important, which is why. And I think we're going to talk about this with this uh, Philadelphia Inquirer article. I think we need to always be really careful to understand that, like, no matter how crazy and insane and shitty and potentially anti-Semitic and racist somebody's views are, we don't have to accept those views and certainly not accept their behavior when they're like going online and spewing bile and hatred at people. But we do need to understand where, they're, where they come from yeah. right? and understand that they, like all of us, come out of this deep embedded network of social relations and material relations that, that creates everybody. Yeah. And they're, they're part of that. They're part of Austin that way.
1: Or, you know, lack of relations, as the case may be.
0: Re- lack of relations is another huge part of this. Like, Because the internet also, it breaks down like true social bonds. Like you said, people, even before COVID, were not going out as much. They weren't going to the VFW hall. They weren't going to Kiwanis or whatever the fuck old people do anymore. They were already starting to isolate themselves. And so, this, of course, social media, as we know, becomes a like uh an analog for actual true companionship in humanity it's a very deeply alienating thing if you think about it
1: even if you don't <laughs> even if you don't it's like pretty pretty much in your face right there yeah yeah so uh, what 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 do we
0: got we got we got more news Yeah. Uh, wait for history as a weapon 9 it's
1: Teaser. going to be coming out uh, in a couple <laughs> <of> weeks <laughs> a couple of few <laughs> weeks all right so here's an article that you called my attention to Sean yeah um in the Philadelphia Inquirer titled a Pennsylvania town once known as communism on the prairie is all about Trump. Now, (sighs) how did this happen? So it goes, how, how, how did such a thing happen? And (sighs) what, what can the Democrats, (laughs) what, what does it say? about the electoral strategy that the Democrats need to be taking in 2020 to get that gosh dang Cheeto out of the White House.
0: This is the sole reason to ever do social analysis or even to go to like people's homes if they live outside the coastal elite bubbles is to see who they're going to vote for and worry, worry, worry about, you know, how that's going to play out. I'm, I'm being sarcastic, of course, right? These are people that live lives, um, not just every four years, but have been living in this place, in this town called uh, Norvelt, Pennsylvania, f- since the New Deal, for like the last 80 years or so. They've been living there, they, they and their families. and uh, Built they,
1: by the government.
0: Yeah. Do you, you want to read a piece from it, or do you want me to just explain what it is?
1: I don't know. It's kind of long. I read the first part.
0: Yeah, read the first part.
1: Uh, Lois Wyant was only seven when her family moved to this government-built town in southwestern Pennsylvania. They had lost their home during the Great Depression, and Norvelt was a so-called homestead founded by New Deal Democrats to help out-of-work coal miners and other struggling families. Now 91, Wyant glowingly recalls the tidy lawns in front of Cape Cod-style houses, the kind neighbors, and the idyllic community of her childhood. Everybody helped everybody else, Wayant said from her home in nearby Greensburg this month. It was a very good community. If you needed something, you just went to your neighbor. Um, oh, a little more. Norvelt, first established as the Westmoreland Homesteads, was one of 92 such government-planned communities established by President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Families who successfully applied to live there got a house, a chicken coop, and a plot of land with a grape arbor for which they paid rent. There was a co-op farm where everyone ex- was expected to work, a dairy barn, and a garment factory. The community was so collaborative that a local newspaper once described it as communism on the prairie.
0: They... the. They were basically—it was like a utopian experiment in cooperative living, right? We talked about this uh, on History as a Weapon, Matt and I, about utopian socialism. This was an attempt in the New Deal in this capitalist crisis, in order to try to figure out a new way for people to live, sort of like public housing, but if that were in the uh, Mm -hmm. in the prairie. But what happened, though? I guess
1: what. What happened? I guess
0: it's pretty clear because we're reading this that it, that's not what it's like anymore. I read the yeah. article and if I can summarize it, basically these some of the same people, but certainly they're like kids and their grandkids are presumably all in for Trump now. Yeah. They're really they want to make America great again. They're really scared of what's happening in the cities. They... um have not so nice things to say about the democrats that they maybe would have been voting themselves mm-hmm. for you know 15 20 years ago yeah. so this little story right here about this town in Pennsylvania is really like a, a mix up a mash up of history as a weapon 4 5 <laughs> and 6 I think right all the yeah. stuff that Matt and I talked about with home ownership because mm-hmm. this community here you own you, you the government helped you to own your own home so in the beginning, people understood that dynamic and they understood the cooperative nature of it and the, dare we say, socialistic aspect of it. But then these people just became property owners after a while. and that Well, it sort says of, they
1: paid rent, but I assume at some point they became property owners. Yeah,
0: yeah. Eventually, I that think it was like seems like a, the
1: kind of thing that the New Deal would provide yeah. to white people in a town, right?
0: Well, and, and, and the town is also obviously, not obviously, but they say in the article it's extremely white. It's like ninety nine yeah. percent white, and has remained that way.
1: Yeah. So you know you, and, and that that is, the reason why this is a case study, right? Because yeah. uh, the white working class has steadily abandoned the Democratic Party for the Republican Party, whereas the non white working class uh has not done that. Not as much. Um. Although rates of voting have certainly gone down, although they may have gone up a little bit in the 2018 midterms. Um, I'll, I'll just read a little quote yeah, her give us here. some money. Quote: for- um, It says her love of the town hasn't changed, but her politics have. A lifelong Democrat, she became a Republican during Barack Obama's presidency and supported Donald Trump in 2016. While she may have shrugged off the socialist label as a young homesteader, today she sees the 2020 election as a battle against socialism. Quote. I don't believe in people working and getting what they make on their own and then somebody saying, well, I want some of it and getting to take it, she said. That's wrong. Let him work for it. In Norvelt, people worked for it. We worked hard.
0: We worked together in a socialistic cooperative Helped out by the New Deal government. If we did that, then these other these other people could do it today. Yeah, <laughs> there is right. none of these programs exist anymore. <laughs> they got the, the the leg up on the ladder, and then you know the rungs. I am not saying they personally kicked the rungs out, but the rungs just like slowly dissolved behind them as they went up this ladder. Yeah, it's a, it's a. I'd say it's a tragic story because you know obviously there were socialists there at a certain point, and it did a lot of great things for people. It's tragic, but it's also just really telling too, about how much American society, how much the economy and how much politics have changed over, you know, now we're talking 75 years, 80 years. So things will change a lot in that time.
1: Well, there are a few, uh, a few factors that we can trace in this article. Um, They save the union one until the very end. Mm. But they do note the death of organized labor and the flight of good union jobs as one factor in this equation where people get a little more atomized a little less community minded shall we say a little more selfish i think unions also have acted as a check on racism historically although you know they haven't been unions racial politics haven't been perfect i think we see racial politics in the absence of unions are quite a bit worse as it turns out yeah Um, And there are some pretty racist quotes in here from people. Um, This one person who is a reverend says, Reverend,
0: Reverend, what are you doing?
1: uh, Yeah. There's this fear that we're going to work hard and pay all the taxes for illegal immigrants to come in and not work as hard and get the same benefits. Same schooling. Said the Reverend David Greer, pastor of the historic Norvelt union church who lives in one of the original 1930s homes. And we're afraid of what we're seeing. We don't want our houses burned down.
0: Mm, a, a thing that immigrants famously do. Yeah. <laughs> just go to like prairie communities and burn
1: just homes. Just burn down. them the fuck down.
0: Well, but we see, like, I know it's a cliche to talk about anxieties, right? But like, these people are so far from that reality, and yet they're so utterly afraid. They're so utterly disconnected with all the things that are happening in this country. It's an atomization thing, not just from each other, presumably. Uh, And not from the communities around them, but from like the whole of this American social structure that's just like crumbling before their eyes and they're fucking scared. Like everybody else, they're trying to hold on to what little it is that they have. They're just doing it in like a bad way.
1: (laughs) Well, it seems like they do have quite a bit in this town. I don't. Well, you know what? No, I've scratched that because the jobs are going away. It says that right there. Yeah, so, one of them works
0: at like a dick Sporting Goods store, so not like, a rich person.
1: They're not, they're not rich people. They still have more than um, undocumented immigrants do, probably. And you're right. They're afraid of losing that position on the social ladder. And they have been um, directed to look below them to the immigrants instead of above them to the bosses. Um, I think it's also an incidence. You talked about that. This in your piece um, in your history as a weapon on the suburbs
0: yes, of
1: sir. government policy hiding itself a little too well from the people that it's helping. So, you know, you can be a homeowner in suburbia and think that you did that all by yourself when, in fact, you benefited from a number of government programs that not only were very helpful to you, but also historically denied to people of color. That's
0: right. Yeah, just stuff like mortgage tax credits and stuff are huge. And we know that that has a way of compounding a certain amount of assets that a family might have down through the generations. And we know that how how that's skewed Mm -hmm. in this country for exactly that reason.
1: So in a way, like the Democrats, by neglecting to take credit for their own policies once again, have sowed the seeds of their own... I don't want to say undoing, because these people still have a ton of fucking money and power. (laughs) Yeah. But um, their own, um, shall we say, debasing.
0: It's not even... It's not even that the, the Democrats, like... Let themselves down when they didn't publicize the like mortgage tax reductions they were doing like various other sort of technocratic ways to help out homeownership in the United States. It's that in a very real sense. The Democratic Party abandoned these people. They abandoned them 20, 30, 40 years ago. They abandoned them under Carter. They certainly, they're talking about union jobs, abandoned them under fucking Bill Clinton with NAFTA, right? So this is like a direct, these are the repercussions of the way that politics have changed and how the Democratic Party has become something else. These people obviously changed since the New Deal, but so did politics in this country.
1: Yeah. Like, I, I was going back and forth with Sam about it today because he thinks the primary explanation for this is just racism. But, like, if that were true, these people would have been just as racist then as they right. are now. Um, although I guess you could say the Democratic Party was also more racist back then. I But
0: I think you're right, though. I, I really don't... I don't think the important thing about this story, this particular story, is delving into the hearts and minds of these these people in this little prairie. I don't don't
1: think they've magically gotten more racist, um, I think. But on the other hand, I also don't think it's a simple one-to-one thing from, oh, the Democratic Party became neoliberal and abandoned these people. Therefore, they abandoned the Democratic Party and fled to the Republican Party. I think correlation... Does not necessarily mean causation here. And I think the same overarching factors that made the Democratic Party into a neoliberal party have also made these people from, uh, you know, progressives, even socialist minded people into these uh, sort of jealous uh, conservatives guarding what little they have from the immigrants Below them. I'm, I'm sure racism yeah. plays a role in that. But yeah, I think sure. the racism has a material cause underneath it all.
0: I I think as a communist, you have to say that. Otherwise, it's just <laughs> like these people get these wacky bad ideas that fill their heads. and They change by what dynamic? I don't even know. But but they just change. Like there has to be a material explanation for it. Otherwise, you're just doing lib shit. Yeah. So when we read articles like this, let's not do lib shit. And let's also like not even take the terms of this article, which is about like voting every four years for a presidential candidate. There's more interesting things happening there even than they were New Deal Democrats and now they've turned into MAGAs. I mean, that's not insignificant, but there's way more dynamics happening there that we should be interested in anyway.
1: That's right. I had a couple more thoughts on this before we move on. Go for it. Um, So I know we just said that we're not going to talk about it in terms of of voting behavior but indulge me
0: sure indulge me for a moment it's your show
1: so uh, i was talking to sam about this a majority report and he thinks that there is evidence that um, progressives should not be pursuing the votes of these people because there's very little evidence that um just by running on like medicare for all or whatever you will get these people to vote for you. He thinks, you know, whatever happened before to make them into Republicans. They're not coming back. And you can hold up as evidence the fact that um, Bernie Sanders did well in some of these places in 2016, but this time around, he really, really did not. And it turns out it was more like they just hated Hillary Clinton than they liked right. all of these um, great social democratic policies. And that was the uh, the quote-unquote Marxist electoral theory behind like DSA <laughs> for Bernie types sure, saying sure. you run on these class-wide demands and, and all of these... you win over
0: the, the residents of Norville.
1: All, yeah, all these white working class folks will be like, oh, hey, yeah, we need Medicare for all that benefits us. We're going to vote for you. That didn't happen. So, what do we do with that information now? Well, um, I think it is, I mean, I'm going to be an electoral skeptic here, but I think it is a little bit of evidence that. Um, You know what? No, I'm going to try that again. That thing that I was just saying, Um, (laughs) fuck it, whatever. Um, I think part of the reason for that, right, is because of what I said before. There is not a direct one to one correspondence between the Democrats being becoming neoliberals and these people becoming conservatives. Right. right? It was the same. it, It was not a causality. They did not become conservatives because the Democrats became neoliberals, although I'm sure that was maybe a factor. Um they became Republicans and conservatives. Because of the same systemic factors That also drove the Democrats to become neoliberals 100% So the idea that the Democrats Could win these people back And turn them into progressives Just by changing their politics From neoliberalism to some sort of You know, Keynesian social democracy That's not going to fucking work So what do you do with that information? Um, You could be like Sean McElwee And say, oh, the progressive left Just needs to, uh, you know Appeal to the suburban moderators it's uh, whatever, sure. whatever, and you know, fuck these. For uh, every
0: voter you live, you lose in Norvelt. You'll pick up two in Alexandria, Virginia. Yeah, fuck
1: these people. And like that might be true if you're just trying to win elections for Democrats in sure. the short term, but. We don't just we don't we don't really care about that. <laughs> we, I, I would say we don't just want to do that, but like we really don't give a shit. No. That is not our project. Our I only project gave
0: a shit for like a little while when it seemed like there might have been some sort of breakthrough.
1: Yeah, our project is building fucking communism. There okay, so maybe that is just evidence that um, a, an election, an electoral campaign, it might not be the move right now.
0: And that I agree, and I think even more fundamentally than this. This is something that I've been grappling um, with the violence you see on the streets that's broken out between, quote unquote, anti thugs on the one hand and then these patriot prayer and sort of right wing MAGA groups on the other. We've talked about this, you know, that that's resulted in violence. And then also all this like shit you see online, just people, right wing people trolling, left people and left people, left wing people trolling, right wing people. You know, that fun thing that we like to do all the time. I think it's important not to underestimate that there are people out there, some of them might even be working class, that are literally our political enemies, that we cannot win them over. In fact, they must be ultimately put in a position where they can't do any harm to the rest of people and there's a certain percentage i don't know what it is out there who just have reactionary views Mm -hmm. proto-fascist views it's not even just the fascists in the streets the identity europa people there are folks out there that we will never ever win not to milquetoast socialism and not if an insurrection breaks out they'll be on the other side of it and we just have to accept that
1: yeah and and like the the social forces that made them this way have not gone away If anything, they uh, are intensifying every day.
0: Every fucking day.
1: So, yeah, uh, you're right. We might have to uh, leave a few of these people behind. Uh, Regrettable. Sorry, if you're a Nazi, um, you're probably not listening to this show, but um, we're we're just going to have to defeat you. Yep. And uh, I don't think we should spend, here's where I agree with Sam, I don't think we should spend that much of our energy trying to get them back once they've gone far enough down the road no. of reactionary Nazi shit. Yeah, you re- you
0: read some of the racist shit that you see online or, like, pro-cop shit that you see online from these right-wing people. It's just nothing's going to work. They are fundamentally your enemy, and we just need to accept that, and it's fine. We'll just have to battle it out one way or the other. That's
1: right. That said, you know, if there are Nazis listening, because they're like, oh, it- maybe I should not be a Nazi. Andy, no,
0: if you're listening.
1: um, Then fine, great. You should just yeah, uh, no. fucking join our side and say like, I'm sorry I was a Nazi and try, everything will be fine.
0: Try not to be a Nazi. But these people, again, just to close this out in this town are not Nazis. Yeah, no. They're just they represent the sort of right wing of the Republican Party, which is completely owned by like MAGA psychopaths Nazis. and QAnon people, not Nazis. <laughs> They're not out, out and They're out
1: not Nazis. Nazis. They're just Nazi adjacent. Which is different. This
0: is going to be a fucked up segue. But speaking of Nazis, what was it that happened? Uh, I think it came out just yesterday in an ICE facility in Georgia.
1: Oh, my God. So, yeah, this is some real Nazi shit. Um, ICE is reportedly giving hysterectomies to immigrants, detainees. Forced hysterectomies. In their centers against their will without their consent. and Allegedly. Allegedly. Well, there was a whistleblower... And she's done some interviews that I found pretty credible. She was a nurse at one of these for-profit facilities. Um, And there's been some additional reporting on it now as well. So if I had to guess, I would say that it's true. It's
0: been confirmed by sources besides the whistleblower. They're they're still in the kind of news gathering Mm -hmm. moment. So we can't be too definitive. But we'll we'll call them allegations. Credible allegations. How about that? Yeah. As broadcast journalists, we can say that.
1: Yeah. And I... It's not that far out of the realm of possibility. Unfortunately, unfortunately
0: because, it's very fucking believable.
1: Because it didn't just happen in Nazi Germany, it's happened right here in the US. Very the Nazis, very fucking recently, might I add.
0: Yeah, and in the all the way up until the 1970s. And spoiler alert, the Nazis learned their eugenic policy and their genocidal ethnic cleansing policies from the United States and what we did with quote-unquote Indian removal in the 19th and early 20th century. So not a new phenomenon in the United
1: States. No. I mean, I don't know what more we could say about this. It's obviously fucking horrible. Um, It's a tactic that's been used against... um, Un- quote-unquote undesirable populations that they're trying... The, uh, a colonialist, a, a settler colonial nation is trying to remove or oppress in some way or keep subservient. It's also a tactic of war, and it's an internationally recognized human rights violation.
0: Literally genocide. Yep. Yeah. People... People have been comparing this to the to Nazi, the, specifically to the Nazis and Joseph Mengele and their programs of like eugenics and democide and all that stuff during the Nazi period. For that, I say yes and no because you mentioned it was a for-profit ICE detention center, Mm -hmm. that wouldn't really happen in Nazi Germany. Things were much more planned and purposive and sort of top-down, at least in terms of like the policies for the destruction of people. Right? They were done in a very systematic way. So that's the no part. But the yes part is that, basically, you've got... Only in America, folks, only in America could you come up with something that looks like Nazi eugenics policy... But with neoliberal characteristics. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I mean, as we discussed before, apparently Nazi economics were neoliberal ahead yep. of their time in That's ways right. that I didn't realize.
0: So, so in the United States, in this era, you could, all this eliminationist rhetoric about immigrants, about brown people in the United States, has reached such a fever pitch in this country. And the policies, not just under Trump, as we know, but under Obama, who strengthened the ICE regime, who increased the deportations, who was so fucking deluded. Talk about deluded, right? These, these Putin clowns. He thought that the Republicans were reasonable enough that he could make the cynical move and uh, and deport more people than they even wanted to. And there was some way going to sit down and do fucking uh, even handed reform of the whole thing. So, like, this, this private structure and this eliminationist rhetoric and all these systemic factors just meant that. In Georgia, they stumbled dick first into like a eugenics program simply because there's no oversight and simply because you just have private actors just randomly deciding to do whatever they want. And the exploitation of people, you know, not just they're kicking them out of the country, but literally making a profit off their backs. (sighs) This couldn't happen this way in Nazi Germany, but it can certainly happen this way in the United States.
1: Well, you know, I'm going to push back a little bit and say it could have been a top down thing. Um, And there are things that we can pin on both parties and there are things we can pin specifically on the Republicans. I think, obviously, Obama and the Democrats are very culpable in creating this framework. However, I don't think that they would have come up with something like this if, in fact it is a top-down thing that the Republicans came up with. I'm just thinking back to torture in the Bush years and how they were, you know, very eager to pin the torture that was revealed on a few bad apples, but... I know because I wrote a biography of Doug Feith in Ugh. one of my previous jobs Fucking that really pissed demon. him off. Total demon. These these things uh, came from the top, and there was a whole lot of um, legal framework created to attempt to justify torture, and um, they really th- those those things did not hold up under scrutiny. But they have never faced any legal repercussions for it whatsoever, and I doubt that these people will either.
0: Yeah, I actually. Before the show, I found a U.S. News and World Report article. New report shines spotlight on abuses and growth in immigrant detention under Trump. This is from in the springtime. And the stats are amazing because, like you said, there's been a, a continuation in some ways, but also a phase shift. Because... There's two neoliberal parties in the United States. There's the left wing of them, which is the Democrats, and the right wing of neoliberalism, which is Donald Trump. So what you've seen since 2017, when Bush came into office, they started passing all these directives and all these laws about mass, more mass deportation, is that his cronies, these Republican Party cronies, have built 80 of these private concentration camps around the country. And conditions are so much worse there than in the state-run concentration camps that Obama had because there's a profit motive to it. Mm -hmm. And it's a looting, right, of of, of this entire political process by the right wing of neoliberalism. So different things are going to happen when you have, you know, public versus a private concentration camp system. You're going to have actors taking vague directions from Donald Trump and other people in the DHS or whatever and applying them, you know, however they see fit because there's no accountability, including, as we saw in this case, possibly mass-forced hysterectomies of immigrant women, certainly sexual abuse, certainly torture. The, the UN has called what happens in there torture. All, so many bad conditions that, like, the hysterectomy thing is a god-awful, horrendous thing, but even without that, This would still be a deplorable, deplorable system. Remember we were debating four or five months ago, or maybe it was longer, who even knows what time is anymore, about whether they were concentration camps or not? Well, here you go, folks. Well, we weren't debating that. We, I meant like society or whatever. We've got our answer to this, folks.
1: Yeah. No, I think uh, anyone who says they're not at this point does not have a leg to stand on. And like the The question of whether or not this is being caused by uh, kind of like neoliberal privatization and outsourcing, or if it's a top-down directive, I think it could be both, right? Like, I think judging from who's calling the shots, like we have fucking Stephen Miller, yeah. In our government in charge policy and he we know the kinds of books that he likes yeah. and we <laughs> know camp
0: of the saints we did a whole we know he's on
1: aware of the great replacement narrative and we know that he's just itching for a chance to do eugenics we know that he,
0: he What was it? the pioneer fund he used to work for which is literally mm-hmm. a nativist eugenicist conservative organization funded by billionaires in order to do exactly the sort of things that are happening right now yeah
1: and if you can do that and you know make some money for the private sector at the same time that's a win-win for them
0: the left wing of neoliberalism it's very technocratic it's very cold-blooded you know it's kind of got this patina of fairness over the right wing of neoliberalism like trump is just pure corruption pure looting and pure depravity but with a with a better profit motive attached to it with markets inserted even more into this exploitation and degradation of people bad folks yeah
1: this this is one instance where i'm like I know the Democrats are bad, too, but I feel like they wouldn't be doing this. I could be wrong. I mean, hopefully we'll uh, see if uh, Biden uh, Biden Biden wins. wins. He claims that he wants to end family separation at the border. I'm sure he would say that he is against forced hysterectomies. And we'll see if he can actually, uh, you know... Carry it. Carry it out.
0: Uh, carry the, like, Get the ball into the end zone. It's looking a little dire right now for the Democrats. If you ask me, that's a story yeah. for another day.